Hello and welcome to the Veterans for Responsible Leadership podcast, Accountable America. I'm the producer and co-host, Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran and museum uh, director by day. Our guest today, or actually our, um, our host is with us, Dr. Daniel Barkov, who is the president and founder of VFRL. He is a current emergency room physician and former Navy SEAL. And our guest today is Mr. Nick Francona, who is a former Marine officer, veteran of Afghanistan, and strong advocate for veterans affairs. So, gentlemen, welcome. Awesome, Jason. Thanks for uh, thanks for being on. And Nick, welcome, man. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Jason. Um, so, you know, I figured we'd start by, uh, you know, kind of getting into your bio. I think you've got, you know, a fascinating story, which we're going to sort of delve into here. But, um, you know, I think the uh, I think the audience who might not be familiar with you or familiar with you from Twitter or anything like that, uh, if you can just tell us, you know, Kind of, you know, about about uh, your your basic biographical information. Let's start there. Sure. So, um, grew up in uh, Arizona. Um, I, I was I was actually I was born in Canada. Um, only lived there briefly. I, not not something I, I advertise too much. <laughs> but um, uh, my dad was playing for the Expos at the time, so it was uh, was born up there. Then uh, I. Uh, Grew up in Arizona, outside of Philadelphia, and then and then the Boston area. Uh, went to UPenn, uh, played baseball there, and uh, joined the Marine Corps afterwards. And I think that kind of caught a lot of people by surprise. It was sort of uh, didn't really have any family history of, of military service at all. <laughs> but um, it was it was something that kind of I had actually like given very strong consideration like my, my freshman year which was uh 2004 is kind of when the a little bit post uh, Iraq invasion but when it was really heating up um it had given pretty con- serious consideration to uh with uh just enlisting at the time yep and one, one of my uh it, it, I'll never forget this it was one of my the guy I played baseball with uh travel ball Growing up, he he had enlisted out of uh, out of high school in the Marine Corps, and we and we weren't really even that good of friends, and didn't really keep in touch. But it it bothered me to no end that he was currently in Iraq, and I was a freshman in college, just like fucking off and not really all that like concerned about serious things in the world. And I, I just that that was a really bad feeling for me, and it kind of that kind of always stuck with me and. Um, actually went into the recruiter's office and they, uh, they, like, as, as some recruiters tend to do, didn't even bother like explaining the difference between officers and enlisted and were just like seeing what, if they could get me to sign something as, as quickly as possible that very day. But, um, eventually like I, I had, uh, some friends like kind of do a bit of an intervention or like, just wait till you, wait till you graduate. If you're going to, if you're going to still go that route, thinking that I'd probably get it out of my, out of my head by then. But that, uh that didn't happen. It kind of stuck with me and, uh, ended up, uh, going to OCS after school. And so, you know, for, for the listeners who might not know, and, and the reason I bring it up is because it's, it's going to be kind of relevant later on, I think, but, but Nick grew up, uh, in a baseball family. His, his dad was a baseball player. His grandfather was a baseball player. His dad was a, was a manager for, for various, uh, baseball teams. Um, and, you know, so I think the, uh, you know, when we were chatting the other day, it was, it was really interesting to me, uh, you know, 
how few sort of athletes from you know our generation had had gone into service uh in in contrast to you know the world war ii generation the, the ted williams um uh, you know, who, who went to, it sounds, you know, Williams wasn't in combat in World War II, but was, uh, uh, was in combat in Korea and, uh, you know, took years out of what, you know, could have been, uh, you know, another 150 home runs on the, on the all-time MLB list. And, and in our generation, it's kind of like there's Pat Tillman and, and that's basically it. Yeah, I think, I think that reflects kind of the, the, sort of like societal expectations with the all-volunteer force. And I think one of the, uh, I don't know, some of the misconceptions about it are that we, you'll see a lot of kind of tropes out there about the military, like preying on the poor. And the, the facts just like do not really reflect that. Like we have like an extremely like well-educated military, a lot of uh, like really strong, like middle-class representation. Part of that is just like we, the standards for, for enlisting or becoming an officer are, are high relative to society as a whole. I think the, the part that doesn't get discussed quite as often that is missing is there just isn't really the, the sort of re- enough representation at the upper echelon across society. So it's, it's not really a thing that you don't see a ton of, of people from kind of the, the upper crust of society really like feeling that, that obligation. I think that with an all volunteer force, there's, there isn't that societal pressure to, to where prior to that is like, you didn't, you, people didn't want to be a, like a shirker. Um, and when, when everyone else was going to, I think you still see it to a degree, but it manifests itself differently now where you'll see some people that, that I mean, I think we we can all probably imagine like the the people who have an eye towards politics and with that in mind might like want to join the reserves for a bit, and it's it's fairly obvious what's going on there. Um, w- with me, that actually like really drove me to like the more friends that I had that said something like, "Oh, nobody from Penn is going to do this," or "Why would you do that?" Um, that like really made me stubborn about it and and dig in and say that like if if like that that is precisely like why why i want to do this yeah no i think that's right and and you know you you came about it a little differently than than i did you know i i was so i was a naval academy guy and was actually in buds when 9 11 happened right so i was joining a peacetime force essentially and you know you made you know, kind of a conscious decision to go into, uh, number one, the Marine Corps, but number two, you know, uh, kind of tip of the spear unit, unit. And, and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, how snipers are, are used in the Marine Corps. Yeah. I don't think I would have, uh, probably joined. I, I can say probably confidently that I, I doubt that I would have joined, um, had there not been active combat going on. And that I don't view that as like a as like a positive trait necessarily. Probably, if anything, speaks to more like the ignorance at the uh, right. At, at, I it just really didn't have that much exposure to it, and didn't really have people I could talk to that that had had uh, wasn't. We didn't have really good family friends, or, or didn't have any mentors that were that were that had served. Um, and and I think it's it's 
one of those things where I don't, I don't really would wouldn't really diminish people's service that had joined during peacetime and that like part of the deal is like you sign up and and you don't know which direction that's always going to go and and you're you're yeah willing to do the the same stuff and and that stuff's out of your hands and so i don't think that's uh we i mean we see it a lot now with kind of people once the wars die down a bit not everyone's deploying but like like we don't know what tomorrow holds so i don't think that necessarily diminishes anyone's service the um when when i when i was kind of looking at what uh I, once I narrowed it down and knew I wanted to to go the military route, I had um, it, it, the Marine Corps seemed like a really good fit. The pe- people that I I spoke to were were pretty uh, pretty laudatory about the uh, kind of the, the junior officer experience on the ground as a Marine officer, and that's kind of the w- way to. Uh, really get like the the experience that you're after um i'd always like wanted to be a fighter pilot growing up but ha- had no real uh once it kind of the rubber met the road it, the the decision was fairly straightforward um i had no idea what to expect like whether i like going into it i didn't i think like i told my parents once I, I told my parents i think they were uh they were sort of like almost like hoping that would be like like an like oh you went to school study business and can't you be like an accountant or something in the military and it's like mom like nobody watches uh the marine commercials and is like i would love to do those like their finances or or keep the book for those guys like that's just not how it works no I think, um, that, I think that's true and and you know the marine corps will kind of proudly you know advertise it as such in, in a way that some of the other services don't right you know it's like join the navy and you know, go on Liberty and in, in mm-hmm. Singapore and, you know, join the army and learn a trade kind of thing. Um, but, you know, the Marine Corps got, you know, guys from eighth and I climbing up the mountain to fight the dragon. Right. So, yep. um, you know, that's what they're, that's what they're after, you know, to their credit. And so, so you then went to, uh, you then went to Afghanistan and where were you in country? I was in, uh, in Helmand Province, which was, was sort of the uh, where, where almost all the Marines were at the time, unless you were kind of in a, in a specialized unit, tasked out to somebody else. Um, we were in uh, Nari Siraj, which is our our, our AO bordered uh, just to the. We we're just south of Sangin. Um, Sangin was just to the north, and a little bit south was uh, was Lashkargah, and it wasn't really a. Uh, wasn't those those I don't know, using the phrase like metropolitan areas is, is certainly a misnomer but it was uh th- those areas were a lot more built up so it was really like maybe like a kilometer from the river valley the helmet river valley there was like a lot of green area and all life was centered around there and every irrigable inch of land was was covered in poppy fields and that was about it. There were a lot of mud compounds and not, there, there were really no, like, like even the idea of like going to a, like a market or, or any type of activity, like none of that existed. It, it was extraordinarily rural. Were you guys on your own or were you attached to like a, like a battalion? Like how, how were you? No, so I'm not sure how they do it now, but back then each, uh, you'll have each Marine infantry battalion will have one scout sniper platoon. And the way they're employed is, is 
varied greatly. So you would see uh, some of the tasking come from the battalion. Uh, sometimes they're chopped out to companies, and then you you might get a, a sniper team, w- one to each company, some combination thereof, and the companies might might put some down at platoons, just use them as, as shooters. Some might uh, just extra infantry bodies. It, it varies greatly. We uh, ended up having uh, having them at the company level, which worked really well because the, the, the companies had their hands full. And mo- most, our, our teams were sort of disproportionately uh, uh, at, at one, one company in particular had a, a lot of the action in the AO. And, and so our teams were, were heavily... Uh, heavily focused with them and, and they had an outstanding company commander who used them aggressively and w- was really open to um really good guy to, like just in, one of the best marine officers I've, I've worked with and we were, we were fortunate in that regard because it, it a lot a lot a lot of that kind of experience can depend on on how that relationship with the company commander and, and as, as the platoon commander you can only you're only in one place at one time and sure. credit sort of manage that relationship with, with the company commanders. But w- one of the challenges with snipers is that you, you, a lot of times you're going to end up with a, a sergeant or, or sometimes even a corporal trying to, trying to deal with a company commander and, and sort of advocate and advise for how his, his team can, can best support their operations. And as you can imagine, like sometimes those conversations go better than others. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got a um, you know soft spot, a soft spot for uh, Marine snipers. I was I went to Marine sniper school myself. Mm-hmm. I was at uh, um, very very lucky to uh, to get a billet to the Camp Pendleton sniper school. I went through in about I guess it was two thousand three. Um, but you know, it's sniping in, in the military and, and that having that asset and that ability to um, you know, conduct the reconnaissance and, and then, you know, engage targets as needed. It's, um, certainly a force multiplier. It, you know, and it's, it's a, I mean, it's a dangerous job, you know, these, these guys are out there in general, uh, you know, operating in, you know, three, four man teams. Um, and there were, you know, certainly in Iraq, there were, there were times when, uh, Marine sniper units were, were overrun and every single one of them was killed. Um, and you know, it's, it's also a, it's an interesting job, I think, as an officer to try to employ snipers. Um, you know, one of the things I, I noticed was I don't really know what my snipers are seeing. You know, they're on scope and they're looking at something 800 yards away. And, you know, you kind of, you, you take their word for it, essentially. And, and um, you know, it, it offers a, it's it's a heck of a lot of responsibility for the individual sniper, but then then for the officers or senior enlisted who are trying to trying to control that situation because you, you really don't know what exactly is going on. Yeah, one of the that's a great point, and one of the uh, things I, I, I early on when uh, when I took when you, you take over the I took over the platoon as a really as like a brand new second lieutenant, which is is not how they they draw it up. That it's not usually how it works but that that's what the kind of the circumstances of the, of the personnel that's how, how it played out and I was, I was really fortunate in that regard but I didn't 
I didn't know shit about shit and, and kind of brought some of the guys that, that I thought I could lean on early on and uh, kind of talk through like what they were just coming off a, a deployment to Afghanistan when I got to the unit. And so we talked about, okay, like what do we want to focus on during the workup? And, and when it came down to it, um, just looking at, I, I went through AARs from, uh, from many sniper platoons deployments and, the uh, commonalities that I that that ended up drawing out that we really focused on were you need to be outstanding with your primary weapons. Like like yes, we have to be extremely proficient at at the the core sniper skills and and but that that's a guys get that at the school and they and you maintain that and build upon that at the, in the unit. However, like what you cannot allow to happen is is you can't you have to be really damn good with your m4 and, and your 203s and outstanding on the radio at communicating these things and and we focused on on primary weapons and more even more than that the kind of overarching theme was the the kind of critical thinking skills and and being understanding the bigger picture so like what you're talking about of yeah. how do we how like what what is the mission here i really need to understand that because i might have tunnel vision but i like I, the NCOs themselves have to be like, like I, I, they couldn't, you can't outsource your thinking there. And like, I, I, I told them time and time again, like, I cannot like emphasize this enough with you guys. Like I have to trust you to go out there and make good decisions on, on whether you're going to end somebody's life or not. And that, that requires a lot of uh very, not a, we, like, yes, everyone in the, in, in, in a combat unit can like theoretically be in that position, but that is, your the plan is to put the guys those guys in that position, so it is going to happen. And yeah, you need like no shit ethically sound people that make sound decisions in in stressful environments. And if not, it's going to be a, an absolute debacle. And you, you we've seen how that plays out. Like it, you really have to have guys with good heads on their shoulders that that are not just competent professionally in their in their the hard skills, but but that you can really trust that they have a solid moral core and are going to going to make good ethical decisions. Yeah, when I, you know, I mean, I, I agree with all that. That, that you know, when I was kind of coming up at the the Naval Academy, God, I forget, maybe it was Krulak, but you know, the one of the commandants of the of the core, there's this sort of, you know, uh, this wave of thinking. They called it like the strategic corporal, yeah. right? You know, where like the the idea being that you know some guy who was a fire team leader. Um, is making decisions with strategic impact, right? You know, it's, it's, and you, you see this, um, you know, it's, it's more and more prevalent now. I mean, you, you see it in Ukraine, right? Like you see footage from Ukraine of decisions that are made, you know, that probably were made by, you know, an E3 or an E4, right? You know, in yeah. treatment of prisoners or, um, you know, the decision to, to, you know, go into one building versus another or whatever. And it's, it's, um, you know, the military's, it's gotta be unique. I, I can't think of anything else that, you know, we, we give 20 year olds the, uh, you know, the keys to the car like that, where they're making life and death decisions, um, and decisions of, of national importance. Um, and, I, and I think it, it, when we, we, we talk about it so often, it, it's kind of viewed in the negative of the things that can go wrong. 
and it, it, it's almost like even w- with a lot of senior officers in the military, it's it's almost like the the think like a strategic corporal because like you could do something that's going to really screw this up for us, and, and it's going to be on my desk, and I'm going to have to worry about. It. And and while that is that is uh, there's there's an element of truth to that. I think the what what doesn't get emphasized enough is an appreciation for like when when you have really good competent people at, at the at and you can flatten the organization a little bit you just, you can just run circles around your opponents and that um and we see that too where we're just it's almost like your your organization's OODA loop is, is spinning much faster than, than your opponents when i mean look at look, like the again in ukraine just the the early stages of that where where it was it was really fascinating to see a especially coming from the Marine Corps where, where it's such a so much the, the NCOs are really the backbone of the Corps and, and just seeing how how, how crippled the Russian military was by the just real, like utter reliance on like nobody could move without asking asking someone who has stars on their shoulder yeah absolutely I, I forget you know at, at some point during my my military education, you know, they, they talk about the OODA loop and it, you know, it became this business term and, and all this stuff. But yeah. you know, the, the example that I love is like, you know, if you're allowed to, to, if you play chess with someone who's really good at chess and I stink at chess, my 10 year old daughter, you know, destroys me nightly, but the, uh, you know, you play chess and if you're allowed to make two moves for everyone, you know, your opponent's only allowed to make one move, like yeah. it's easy to win. Right. Like, and so, you know, that's, um, you know, for the listeners who might not be uh, versed in kind of military doctrine, um, the idea is to, to make decisions faster and set up a system in which you can make decisions faster. You and back faster from that, too. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, it, and we give, you know, we entrust 19 year olds to do this. And, and for the most part, to your point, they are doing an incredible job of it. Yeah, and if you, you just have to think about like what is what is inhibiting allowing that to happen in, in certain uh, contexts, and and most of the time it's it's okay. We don't we don't trust them to make good decisions. So then you get into like, well, what people are we putting in those positions? How are we training them? What are the what are the um, skill sets that we're looking for? And and in, in my situation, I had a a sniper platoon that was, it was just coming back from deployment. They had a, a ton of casualties, unfortunately. And, and so we had a, a bare bones platoon that we really needed to build up. And so looking at it that way, the, it, it was abundantly clear to me that we're, we're, we're going to run some screeners for the platoon. The, the skill sets that we need, like, I don't really give a shit how many push-ups these guys can do. I, I do care if they're going to shoot the wrong people and, and not be where they say they're going to be. And, and so we focused on on the critical thinking skills, like reliability, just ability to make good sound decisions under like the worst of conditions. And and I think that paid off a lot. Like we wanted guys that were gonna like a guy that was like a really good infantryman was was. I mean, it, it just yeah, you have to be able to put around on on target at the end of the day. But we can we can help guys do that like that's a that's a a skill that we can create we can't make somebody not a shithead yeah exactly um so you go through this afghanistan deployment Mm -hmm. and 
you come home. You go through this Afghanistan in Sangin in what? Sorry, what year were you there, Nick? In 2011, yeah, so we're just south of Sangin. So, I mean, you know, like hot, like a hot deployment, lots of combat. um, And then you come back and and you decide to get out, right? Like, so how how did that feel? Like, what 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 was that like? I was really torn on it. Um, I I never I never went in with the idea of um, wanting to do a career in the Marine Corps. I, I did really like it, um, some aspects of it. I, I, um, I mean, I had no, I had really no idea what to expect going in, and and I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I'd actually, I volunteered to get out, uh, or sorry, to, to uh, before I got out, I wanted to. There was a. This is when they were doing the uh, embedded training teams, and they had. Uh, needed a somebody to do one with with an afghan military unit and it was uh like right before i got out and and not a ton of people had the the schools or mos that would would qualify for it and and the the one other person that did it just gotten married and and so i was like okay i'll I'll take one for the team here and i'll I'll sign up for this and they, they wanted me to move my I was like, I just want to get out when I'm back from that. And they ended up uh, canceling. That was when there was a, the green on blues were getting a little out of hand at that point. So they, they yeah. not doing those. And so I got out. Um, part, part of me wishes I, I had stayed in a long, a little longer. I, I kind of go back and forth on it. I think it, a lot of it depends on uh, kind of your individual experience within the, within the, the Marine Corps and your, your kind of the off, mentors as officers that you had and and I, I think i had a mixed bag with that some were really good and, and others uh, i didn't think were were at quite as as strong um but I, I go back and forth on whether i i got out too early or not um so I, I i ended up getting out and i went to work um in dc on i had a uh a guy I had known for a while since I was back in college as, as a kind of a mentor. And he was, uh, he had been a, uh, uh, pretty senior in pretty senior national security positions at, at the white house for a few different administrations. And he had gone to Booz Allen Hamilton and was working on some intelligence, uh, projects and went, went there for about a year. And then, uh, I kind of always had the, the bug to work in baseball at, in a front office, that was, that was kind of always, always there. And I had, I had considered it, um, getting out of the Marine Corps. I'd really like looked at that as an option. And it, it was a, it would have been a tough transition at the time. I mean, it was a tough transition oh. period, but it was, there really wasn't, there wasn't anybody who had done that. And, and I think part partially as a result of that, there wasn't, necessarily like any it was almost like those those they're like a, like the options where it's like oh you can come come be like a minimum wage intern and and uh we'll treat you just like the kids out of college and and i'm i was fine with like the idea of certainly like proving myself and and that i, I there was a little bit of a i think one of the things that that i wish i had known at the time or at least i paid more attention to is like like I, I had focused so much on the on the side of the ledger about like being willing to do the like work work your way up and 
and prove yourself, especially coming from a, a family in the in an industry that that there's there is a lot of nepotism, and not didn't really put some blinders on to the the fact of like if like there are people that value like your experience and and can can know how to kind of put that to work if if there are others that have that um if if they if they basically like when when it's the extreme other side and it's like okay we're going to treat you like you've just been in kind of prison or something for the last four years then that like should probably stop and consider that a little bit at least and kind of understand why that is so do you think so when you got out you know i I think one of the things that's interesting to me about transition in in general from the military to the civilian world right like you know we give all this um we like literally make great movies about boot camp right you know there's there's jarhead and full metal jacket and you know all these boot camp scenes or or an officer and a gentleman if you want to count it right like there's we make a lot we make a big deal of transitioning from civilian to military. And I think there's good reasons for that, right? Like it, it is kind of a, uh, a can, or it can be like sort of a dramatic experience. It can be, you know, it's, it's for many people, it's leaving home for the first time. There's all these sorts of things that make it like at, at the very least it's memorable. Right. And you're acculturated to the military, you know, you've got this, this, you're part of a society with sort of its own norms, values, literally its own laws. And then we, we leave that, you know, we leave service, your enlistment's up, or you're, you know, you decide to retire, or whatever it is, and you get, you know, four days of PowerPoint, and then you just take off the uniform, and that's it. And I'm, you know, it, it seems to be a common theme that people, um, you know, if not struggle, it seems that, you know, actually, you know, I would use the word struggle. I mean, it seems like a lot of people have a hard time getting out. And, and you know, for you to go from, you know, hard combat in Afghanistan to, you know, I don't know anything about an MLB front office, but it, it seems like an abrupt transition. So how, how was that? Well, so I had, it's a really good question. And I had the, so... When, when I was first getting out and I had looked at going straight into baseball and would is like kind of starting that there was just such a disconnect between the options that I had outside of baseball and inside of baseball like it would there it was it, it was really a stark contrast and it was that was like kind of telling at the point of stark enough where it's like okay like I don't not like going to be like a, like kind of like a intern, like I would have after like my sophomore year in college or something. That would have been a really tough transition, I think. Right. The, um, in a lot of ways, that, like the transition was probably delayed for me until I worked in baseball because having that, that first year where probably about a quarter of my colleagues were veterans and you're like being in the, I was in the DC area and you're around a lot of them um, still having like a uh, kind of mission focused, like national security oriented yeah. job. Yeah. Um, it, that, that was actually like a relatively easy transition it, it, where it kind of hit suddenly was when you are working at a place where there are literally no other veterans like period. And 
it like there's all of a sudden it's like people kind of look at you like like what did what did you do wrong that you had to join and <laughs> it's like well okay um that that was uh that was something that i that i i didn't really anticipate and, and was uh it was it was tough because you, you were you're in a lot of ways it was like you're you're a novelty right and that was a weird thing because i i, I didn't want to play like i didn't want to play it up or i was certainly proud of, of having served and thought it had would do it all over again but it wasn't something i was shy about but i i didn't have like wasn't all tatted up and didn't have like a high and tight. I, I think <laughs> probably would have not known I'd been in the Marine Corps had I had a, if, if, um, that, like we could have a conversation, they might not know that. And I think it, uh, it, it was really weird kind of not having anyone, not just with, with that experience, but it being really rare for it, 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 it being so, so foreign and, and kind of outside of the box was, was, uh, a little weird and, and like just a little discomforting at, at times. I think the, uh, I think where it was particularly weird was with baseball where you have like such an like ubiquitous like marketing campaign around like supporting veterans and yet there's like none of them. Like working there, that was really weird <laughs> disconnect. Yeah, I, I want to get back to that, but the, you know, I experienced a, a little bit similar, I think, in in medicine, where um, you know, if there were people, if there certainly are, are veterans who get out and go to medical school, a lot of them were you know medics or corpsmen while they were in, right? So um, to go from you know kind of the the combat side of things to to medical school was was bizarre. Um, you know, it, not just because, you know, medicine is this healing profession and, you know, the military is obviously not. And, you know, I mean, that's a little bit of it, but it, you know, the, the culture was just so dramatically different for me. Like the, um, you know, medicine, certainly at a place like where I went to med school, uh, has kind of a very hierarchical culture. You know, it's it's almost the opposite of that flat culture that you get in soft units and, and Marine Corps sniper units. And um, and I think I, you know, like anyone would, I, you know, I think I, I struggled with some of that sometimes, you know, d- learning the new cultural norms where, you know, I was telling you the other day when I was in the SEAL teams, if you, you know, thought something was stupid or, or fucked up or whatever, you could go, you know, behind closed doors and talk to your boss and be like, Hey, this idea is friggin' stupid. Like, why are we, you know, you could, you could say things like that. And, and, uh, I learned quickly that, that, that does not exist <laughs> in, in medicine. And, um, how was it culturally to move to, you know, for I mean, it's a sport. It's a it's a sport that's part of our national story. But at the end of the day, it's an it's the entertainment industry. So you know, how how did how was that for you? Um, in some ways, like the the like I'd grown grown up and spent so much time around around professional baseball. Growing up, that a lot of the cultural aspects I, I was uh, were were something I, w- I was already familiar with. I think, um, like, like some of the aspects that like were, were really 
enjoyable for me and that, that the Marine Corps prepared me well for were just uh, managing people. Like, it, like when I worked in, in player development, you're managing and, and working with a lot of coaches, and, and some of them are going to be from, you're going to have people from the Dominican Republic, from Venezuela, United States, all, really all over, and they're going to be in disparate locations, kind of spread to the wind. You're going to have, like, analysts with advanced degrees and and then you're going to have people who've done nothing but play baseball professionally since 16 years old or 14 years old and and then coached and so i i really enjoyed that aspect and and giddy like giddy managing like the the, being able to kind of bring everyone together on that and, and pull on the same end of the rope um the the part that like even growing up around baseball that it didn't really probably anticipate enough is is that kind of that mission focus of the there was I I almost kind of had this naive approach to it of like if you try like do the right thing act like like be a team player do the right thing like don't be like selfish that is um like that that matters people will transparently see that i think what uh there's there was almost like a a, a value of like make manage your career early on and like by kind of like the buddy buddy groups and and but almost like treating that itself as an ethic and there's kind of coded ways in which it, it's disgusting. You'll kind of see it when people get hired for jobs about how well, how well liked somebody is in the industry or, or th- things like that. And, right. and sometimes it's hard to see through and other times you're like, well, like, okay. Like you say he's well liked, but like, maybe like we, we need a, a touch less uh, congeniality and like a little bit more like straight shooting here. And sometimes, and, and I think, uh, I think that was something that wasn't, uh, valued like I and I, that was that was uh I think where there was a lot of conflict for me so yeah and you know so I'm gonna editorialize for a sec with for the listeners um and I, I've not heard you describe this but essentially what happened was um there was an alleged sexual assault at a spring training facility and other people tried to cover it up and you didn't let it go. And you ended up getting fired over that. Is that an accurate summation? Um, I'd say it's a, little, a lot uh, deeper than that actually. So there were, uh, that was like one, one of many incidents is it, it, um, and, and what was really tough is that like, I really didn't, it didn't feel, and this is probably like the, like, looking back on it, I feel a little naive about this, but like at the time, like I, I, I didn't really feel like it was like dangerous or I was doing anything like courageous to stand up. Um, it was kind of, just like kind of living through it and trying to do the best you can each day and, and make good decisions. And it, in retrospect, it, it like when you look back at it and see kind of how the communications went and all that, it's, it was readily apparent what was what was going on in the dynamic there and i and i was that, that was something I, I definitely had some blind spots to in retrospect but the the issues that kind of the it, it, it was really disappointing because it, it's still like 
it's it's a bitter pill to swallow even to this day because it, it was so unnecessary and, and there were so many things that were an outstanding fit. But really the what, what kind of kicked it off is we had a uh, – when I was with the Dodgers at the time, we had a, a – that, that was – we had new ownership that had, had I, I came in when they were kind of rebuilding their front office. It was part of the new group that, that was there and spending a lot of money, uh, like really like record setting money in the signing uh, international players to kind of stock up the, the farm system with prospects mm-hmm. and had a notoriously corrupt group of, of scouts that were managing that. And it, <laughs> that's something that, that I had known was uh I'd always known was an issue. Like it'll pop up from time to time where you'll, you'll see some reports on it. Um, there's a lot of corruption on, on that side of the industry um, with kind of scouts and kind of dirty agents, like still essentially like stealing money from the players. Um, a lot of bribery. Um, when you get into signing Cuban players, you have a, a, a whole other additional set of, of challenges that, that where people end up like getting you, you legitimately get into like, like actual human trafficking issues. And it was kind of the perfect storm where we had a, an organization that was spending a exorbitant amount of money and also had some, had a, a kind of a core group of, of executives on that side that were like complete shitheads. And so it, when you'd, it, it was it was interesting that like from my when I look at it I'm like well this there was like it was inevitable that I would kind of can run into this and and confront it um, but at the same time like that's it's always exi- it, it exists and continues to exist and, and has and people just don't say anything and and that like I didn't like make I it, I certainly didn't make some like conscious decision of like I'm going to be the one to to take a stand on this um i I, it never even occurred to me that i didn't feel risky at the time it was like hey like don't do fucking crimes to (laughs) i would encounter this stuff and would would just was pretty straightforward about it It was like we're not we're not doing this this is bullshit and but but nick but you you did do that and so yeah but but you know i mean it doesn't feel like like i think most of my like, like I would expect you to do that as well. I think where there was a gap was that I think like the reasons for having those expectations is because like there we have somewhat of a similar kind of moral and ethical foundation of from from some certain experiences that we would have had. And where where does I was that alone in that part? Where does that come from for you? You know, like. We, we see this all the time, right? You see it with, you see it with Trump, right? Like how many people, um, you know, or I don't know, a, a two-term congressman from wherever and, you know, they knew what they were doing was wrong and they knew, but they, they went along with it. And, you know, next thing you know, they're, uh, they're defending the January 6th rioters, right? So like what, what in you, was it the Marine Corps? Was it your upbringing? Like what? Why did you give a shit? I don't. I don't know. I I know like the one thing that like I kept kind of coming back on was like if it like I wouldn't have gotten in trouble if I 
didn't it wasn't like a matter of like I don't want to go to jail um because that that like this is a prevalent thing and like it wasn't wasn't really that it was more like if if this is I remember what I told our like the president of the organization at the time of like they were uh like like everybody knew about this and it was like we had a meeting and I was kind of the junior person at the uh I was, frankly was like a little surprised that I, that I was even even at the meeting and it was kind of like the the inner circle of guys trying to figure out how to just how to handle this early on and I was like it's pretty straightforward like if like if we don't do anything about this like we own this problem and it's like this is like to be clear like you are now aware of this and if you don't do anything this is like happening on your watch so like you own it and that seemed like fairly reasonable thing from like from where where i was sitting like that was alarming to everybody else um that was like was extremely alarming and um and kind of to get back to your like original point there were there were actually there were multiple incidents of sexual assaults and it was a uh i I don't want to i don't think like this was like a in some ways like in out of control aberrant organization as much as like it was just like really bad decision making and and kind of in an industry where there's such a default to the like cover up pr problems because like that's the that's the like the worst the, the worst thing that could happen is is things getting out rather than correcting them and so you end up with a really perverse dynamic where oftentimes what happens is like there's there's really nobody kind of like looking out for like like stepping back and saying like what are we doing and you'll even see like what what happens really commonly is like even at the MLB level they'll almost like be like when when you have some like some scandal or other you'll you'll see the the league almost aligned with the bad actors from a perspective of like not wanting this to get out and it, it creates some like really perverse dynamics. Do you, you know, I'm, I, I'm just fascinated by people who demonstrate real moral courage, you know, which, which I kind of define, I say this all the time, but you know, physical courage is great and it's hard to do. And, you know, storming the machine gun nest is, is, you know, valorous, but our entire society is set up to reward that, right? Like, you know, you get the medal of honor or, you know, you're, you, you know, or, or whatever it is. And moral courage is, is by definition lonely because yeah. you are doing something against the tribe against, you know, no one's going to give you the congressional medal of honor for, you know, for, for some, for some act of moral courage. Right. And so, you know, how, how was that for you? Like, you know, so, you know, to be let go, to be essentially ostracized, right. From an organization that was sort of your family industry, you know, does that feel to you? Does that feel worth it? Um, I don't, I don't, it's really hard. Um, I I certainly did not anticipate how hard it would be. I, that, that, uh, I'd be lying if I said that, like, I 
I, I had an idea early on that it could be really bad because I knew that I did know that once there was a little bit of friction over this, I knew that like, it's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like be okay. There's, there's nothing you're going to say to me where I'm going to say like, okay, you know what? It's cool. If you guys steal a hundred thousand dollars from this 14 year old, right? Like that just wasn't going to happen or, but I did it. I, I, and so I, I could, I could sort of see where it could go. I didn't, uh, I didn't have n- nearly enough appreciation for, for like the depth, the depths of that. And it, 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 I'd be lying if I said it didn't suck. Like a lot of it sucks. It's really hard. Um, it, I don't, I've never really thought of it in terms of, having regrets because like if you're doing something like that for the the right reasons it's it's hard to you don't really do the right thing and and then say go back and look at it and say oh i i wish i didn't do the right thing because it came with consequences like that that's stupid that that, you're not doing the right thing for the right reasons and if that's if, if that's your framework um i i wish it were easier to do the right thing. I think that's, that is the really like a reflection on an industry's leaders, in my opinion, and, and organizational culture and culture at more writ large of when you get to the highest levels of it, of if, like, if, if somebody doing the right thing in your organization is genuinely doing the right thing in an organization and, and they're being ostracized, like you probably have some, some real, pieces of shit at the top of that organization. And, and I think in mid, I think like in one of the people that was really critical was Rob Manfred, the, the MLB commissioner, because like, again, like I think the organizational values uh, across the board really reflect like a, a guy who's morally bankrupt and, and do, like does value like covering things up and, and just, just not, a, not an ethical bone in his body. Yeah, I mean, you know, I always think of, I forget the exact saying, you know, but it's, you walk past something and you let something slide and that's the new standard. Your standards are, are, are what you tolerate? Yes, yes, that's yeah. it, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting how, you know, it's interesting just how hard it is. And, and you know, sometimes it, it can, you know, later on, once, you know, there's distance from, you know, a decision to, to exhibit moral courage, the... Um, you know, in hindsight, people, you know, I think of Hugh Thompson, right? Like the, the guy who stopped the Me Lai massacre, um, who was like, they wanted to file criminal charges against him, yeah. you know, for disobeying orders. And, and you know, it, and, you know, now 50 years later, we've got, uh, you know, an award for in his name and, and, you know, but it, moral courage is just such a hard thing to, um, you know, to, to, to promote as a as a society and, and as a group, it's it, I just I'm fascinated it by. Feels like it's becoming harder too. Yeah, like yeah. It, it, when you look around, it's like it's like God, are we becoming like a country of, of grifters? And and that's uh, you see like the when you see like just like the worst behaviors being rewarded time and time again, it's 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 disconcerting. It's hard to let you're like 
man, is, is this like, these, these should be timeless values and not like, I shouldn't feel like old fashioned for not being a crook is like, it kind of, that's, that's where I think you struggle. And it's a, I think you, it, it, I, I, in part, like, I think part of having moral courage is like being introspective and, and recognizing like, are you right in fighting a difficult fight or are you being a, like a stubborn jackass and are wrong here? And like knowing the difference between those two. And, and I think when you look at like, like kind of like the, the culture of our politics right now, it, it's like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's the right way to way to do things. I don't think this is like, like I'm just old fashioned. Like I think we should not have so many grifters. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Well, let's, I think that's a great way to end it, man. I, uh, I appreciate your time. I mean, you know, like I said, I, I, your story is just, it's fascinating to me. I, I can't imagine the, the pressure of, of, you know, being in your shoes sometimes. So, um, Thank you for your time. If folks want to follow you, is it your uh, is it Nick Francona on Twitter? Is that your your handle? Yeah, and for, uh, I uh, temporarily I make fun of Elon Musk periodically, so I might not. Uh, I don't know how long that'll last, but but I'll love it if it changes. All right, sounds good. Hey, Nick, thank you so much, and and Jason, as always, thanks for for putting it together. Um, uh, Nick Francona, everyone, uh, a great story of someone who who did the right thing. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Jason. Thank you for listening to An Accountable America, brought to you by Veterans for Responsible Leadership. If you want to learn more about the organization, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or online at www.vfrl.org.